Let's pray together. Blessed is the man, the woman, the child that takes refuge in God. And Father, we come now and take refuge in you, asking you to move mightily, that we might <clears throat> hear your word, believe it, uh, be transformed by it, uh, that we might live for your glory, enjoy your greatness. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. How long has it been since someone has asked you the question, you know, why does God allow such evil? I mean, how long has it been since someone said, well, with all these hurricanes and natural disasters, I mean, where is God in all that? Or, or how, when someone asks you, well, you know, that person, that child was abused, or here's another corrupt government, you know, what's going on? What's God doing with all this? I mean, it's a real question. I mean, people really struggle in their faith. Can I trust a God that seems to allow such brokenness? Can, can I trust that God? Well, you know, that's a huge cosmic question. And I don't, I don't want to be too simplistic with it, but, but I do believe that the, the Bible does give us some answers to that question. It, you know, we looked last week, we're trying to look at the whole story of God and man over this Advent season. And so how does God and man intersect in this world? And we kind of looked at this, this, um, this story of God, if you will, in four parts. One is creation, that God's created all things good. And, and then creation fell into corruption, and that creation has gone bad. It's gone, it's gone left. And then, and then God promises this Redeemer to come deliver this fallen creation, and then bring it back to something great and glorious. That's the Bible story. It's this act of God moving among us. Last week, I looked at creation in a little more detail. And, and this week, I want, to look at, I want to look at the fall. I want to look at what corrupted creation. Why do we have evil? How did it go so wrong when it seemed to start so right? And so if you turn with me in Genesis chapter 3, uh, probably one of the most important chapters in the scriptures, Genesis chapter 3, and in your, um, in your bulletins you have 6 to 15. I'm going to read 1 to 15. So we'll start in Genesis chapter 3, 1. And, and we're trying to trace this storyline of God and, and, and man. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes, and the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. 
He said, who told you that you are naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is, it, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and between the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. You shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, so l- let me, before we look at the fall, we've got to look at creation real quick. So just bear with me as I kind of do a bit of a retread here from last week. Do you remember how God created all things good with his word? Everything was good. We looked just in brief at the power and the precision of creation, right? All of creation, all the heavenly hosts that he's made, I mean, they're all out there for us just to kind of be in awe over. You know, if, if you consider just the sun for a minute, the sun would be an example of God's power just displaying himself to us. So you think about the sun. It's there. We can't do anything about it, good or bad. We can't make it hotter. We can't make it colder. Uh, we can't even stare at it for very long without going blind. Just as a reminder of the sheer power of God. You know, NASA is to supposedly to send some space probe there. It can only get within 3.5 million miles. We can't even study it up close. It's so powerful. I mean, it, it's, we could throw all of the armaments that all of the world ever has made, and it couldn't hurt it. Just standing there almost in contempt of us. This is the power of God. But it's not just the power of God. It's the providential care of God. I, I mean, every day the sun is giving us warmth. It's giving us light. It's giving us life. If the sun were to stop, we would just die in a moment. So God has just placed the sun as a reminder. I am glorious. This is testimony to it, and yet I'm caring for you. So all of creation was meant to just call us to just worship and in fear of God. But not just the creation, but also humankind, the man and the woman. I mean, they were made in the image of God. So they were like God. They were not God, they were like God. They had capabilities and attributes similar to God. They could relate to God uniquely. They walked with God, enjoyed God. They, they uniquely related to one another. They had joy with one another. They were naked. They were unashamed. And that's not just speaking to the joy of sexuality. It's also speaking to the nature of innocence. And there is no guilt. There is no fear. There is no competition between the husband and the wife. It was just lovely. And, and they were involved in adding to creation. They were called to bring forth children. They weren't creating out of nothing as God did, but they were procreating. They were creating with God. It was a glorious scene. But they weren't just given a unique nature. They were given a unique position to steward the world. That they were given dominion over the world. That the world would have submitted itself to their leadership such that all work would be pleasurable. The world was perfect, but it wasn't complete. So God had appointed this man and this woman to cultivate, to develop, to bring to its fullest potential all that God had made. So it was going to be a beautiful scene, man, woman, exercising a godly right dominion over creation, bringing it to its fullest potential so that God would be honored in all things. I mean, it's enviable to look back at that. We look back at the 50s and think, wow, those were some innocent days. They were nothing. Go back to creation. It was glorious. It was great, perfect, lovely, everything lovely about it. 
But that's the rub. How do we go from something so good to something so wrong and so bad? What we have now. This is what theologians call the fall of man. You know, you go from this nakedness and unashamedness, this perfect unity and joy, and then you come to the conflict that we have now. Chapter 3 is the answer. Chapter 3 gives us a window, insight, into how things went sideways. When you look at chapter 3, it kind of jumps right off the page at you. The serpent you meet right in the first few words. And there's no introduction, there's no explanation, there's no description about it. You just meet him. Later on, we'll learn that he's Satan, but you don't know that. He's just a serpent. And you know that his intentions aren't good. Right away, you know that, because he's, he's beginning, you can tell from the questions that he's a deceiver. He's saying, did God really say you shouldn't eat from any of the trees in the garden? No, no what, what the serpent's doing there is he's beginning to try to place uncertainty and doubt in the mind of the first couple. He's trying to question the goodness of God. He's trying to almost imply that God's rule over the man and the woman is really harsh and restrictive. You're getting cut out of something you probably deserve. And then he moves to a more direct attack and say, well, you know, you're surely not going to die. You know, so he immediately and directly goes against the word of God. And what he's doing here is he's not just placing doubt an uncertainty in the mind of the people, of this couple, over the trizzleness of God's word, but he's lacing their minds with, are you really satisfied? He's introducing dissatisfaction to this couple sitting under stewardship or under God's rule and reign. And of course, they, you know, because remember now, they were given full freedom and total autonomy over all of creation except the tree in the midst of the garden. It's the only thing. They had all authority, all freedoms. And of course, that's what the serpent leads them to say. Yeah, but there's something going on there that I think you need. It'll make you wise. And so, of course, the couple falls, chooses to disobey God, revealing a desire in their own hearts to not be under God, but to be with God gods themselves. They didn't want to be the one receiving the rules. They want to be the one giving the rules. And then notice how quickly it collapses. It says, she took some of its fruit and ate. That's all he says. In other words, the act is just an immediate response to what was already going on within their hearts. So she took some and ate and she gave some to her husband. Oh, there he is. I wonder where he was. Who was with her and he ate. That's the big question. Where in the world was Adam? Probably hands in his pocket, quiet, just passive, not leading, not encouraging, not teaching, not loving, not protecting. Man, I mean, this is unbelievable. If you walk around with your hands in your pockets a lot, well, they say if the shoe fits, I think is what it is. I mean, this is unbelievable. So, so everything goes in immediate, in a ca- catastrophic direction. What happens? Well, they once loved the voice of God. They'd hear his sound, and they would run to him. Now they run from him. They're scared. They're frightened. They're embarrassed. They're ashamed. And they hide from the presence of God. They try to cover themselves from God. And, of course, God had warned them back in chapter 2, 15 to 17, that if they ate if they disobeyed, 
then God would bring judgment. And he does. You see it. He judges the serpent first. He says, above all the livestock, you are cursed, implying that all the livestock were cursed. And then he turns to the woman, and he strikes at the woman and brings judgment to where she sinned. He said that in childbirth, you will experience pain. God's mercy is still present in that she's still involved in life-giving, but it's with pain. It's been distorted. It's been marred. And in the relationship that was to be most meaningful to her, there would be conflict. And for the man, he curses the ground. That area that you are to work, that area that was supposed to submit to you is now going to rebel against you just like you rebelled against me. And so it's with sweat and toil that you're going to eat. You ate the fall into sin, and now you're going to eat with toil, reminding you every day. This is the reality of sin and judgment. And then he says, to dust you'll return. In other words, you're now going to be exiled from God. Think about the exile themes that run through Scripture. It starts right here. They're exiled from God. And that meant death. Angel with a flaming sword saying, you're not going to come back in here alive. You will come back in, but it won't. It'll be through death. So that's the storyline. Now, now it, it continues, though. You find that children are born, but they're not born in innocent. They're born with this twisted nature of their parents. And, and, and what you just see is these cycles of violence. No longer do we live for the glory of God, we live for our own glory. Everything's twisted and turned sideways. And of course, they're exiled, so death occurs, right? Chapter 4, your first death, it's a murder. Cain murders Abel. And then in chapter 5, it's interesting, he gives this genealogy. This first recording of all these are the events of God. And there's an interesting refrain in chapter 5. It says, and he died, 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 and he died. Eight times, and he died. Never the language of Genesis 1 and 2. Now, death is present and powerful, and he died. And you just see these cycles of violence and sin. Can you continue throughout the pages of the Old Testament, all the way up to Malachi? The curse remains. Death remains. In the storyline, remember last week we talked about the introduction and the tension? Now we're at this point of tension. What's going to happen? What's God going to do? Well, when you turn the page to the New Testament, what happens? Is it any different after Malachi? Well, you meet John the Baptist. John the Baptist happens to be one of the good old breed. He's kind of like an Old Testament prophet. He's picking up where Malachi left off. He's saying repent and believe is what he's saying. He's even calling Pharisees the religious. Hey, your religiosity, it's not enough. We got something new in town that's radical. Everybody has to repent and believe. So what will God do? Well, God's going to bring, of course, the story continues on. God's going to bring a deliverer, a son. And the son's going to now take upon himself the sin and the curse so as to redeem man. But I want you to know this wasn't like a halftime adjustment they made. Hey, we're down 20 points. It's like I go into a Maryland game about some halftime adjustments, but I think I'll skip that. They needed to make some adjustments. It wasn't a plan B. It it wasn't, we're caught off guard. God had planned all the way back in 315 of Genesis. There was a promise given. Now, it's kind of encrypted. It's kind of cryptic. It's kind of hard to understand. He talks about this enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring or seed. 
He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. There's not a lot to go on that, but as you begin to trace that thing out through Scripture, it begins to pick up clarity and momentum. There's a promise that Adam and Eve would have understood and said there is hope here in this promise. Don't know exactly what the promise is, but somebody, a seed from you, Eve, is going to come, and he's going to undo what has been done. At some minimal level, they understood that. And then that promise began to pick up steam. You kind of see it in Noah. Because as God brings another judgment, he saves that family. And Noah is like a new Adam. Be fruitful and multiply. Right? Same language you gave to Adam. And then, of course, you have the judgment in in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel. Again, we're reaching to be like God. And what does God do? He calls Abraham now. The promise to Adam that was carried through Noah is now given to Abraham. And now it's going to be through Abraham's seed that the curse is going to be removed. But Abraham had a lot of seeds, and they were disobedient to him. And thereby the curse just kept remaining until one seed came. And the seed of Abraham would be Christ. Perfect Israel. Whereas Israel always failed This seed, Jesus, would not fail. Do you remember how he said when he was baptized, he said, I must do this to fulfill all righteousness, the unrighteousness of Israel versus the righteousness of Christ, the unrighteousness of Adam, the righteousness of Christ. Also, when Jesus speaks about, I must fulfill the law, not to abolish the law, that I'm going to walk in the way that Israel was supposed to walk in. And so Jesus is clearly holding himself as representative of, of the children of Abraham, who were supposed to be a light to the world, and now he's the light to the world. A friend gave me greater clarity on this passage, particularly as it relates to Galatians three thirteen. Paul writes these words, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now the promises were made to Abraham. Remember, they were also made to Noah. And they were also made to Adam. And to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring who is Christ. So Paul clearly sees Christ being the offspring of Abraham, the promise of Adam to be the curse for us. So we, got this, we have this massive problem that God has brought judgment onto the world. There's a curse upon the world, and Jesus has come to deliver us from the curse. Now, where did it take place? Well, think about the cross for a moment with me. When he's, standing, when he's being crucified, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's undergoing the curse of God. He's bearing sin and shame and guilt of us. But not only that, he's even hanging there naked. When was the first time shame is introduced into the scriptures? It's when Adam sins and sees his nakedness. And so Christ is hanging there naked. The tree that led to death is now the tree that will lead to life. This is Christ. He's the one that has redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. This glorious substitution where now he will bear our curse and our shame and our guilt. 
And God will vindicate him by raising him from the dead, sitting at the right hand of God, and giving the Spirit to confirm that all that has happened. So the role of the Spirit in the life of the believer is confirming Christ is reigning, and we are now a new people of God, filled with the Spirit, in fulfillment of the promise in Ezekiel and the promise in Jeremiah. It's incredible. The story is building up to Christ. But it doesn't end there. While he has atoned for sin and while he has made a new people of God, we're still bearing that remaining vestiges of sin. That's why we still have evil. That's why we still struggle in this life. But the day that is coming is a day of full consummation. It's a day where all of those of you, all of you who have been hurt or you have hurt others, it will be righted. It will be made perfect. Jesus says, it will be made new. Recreated. That's the story of what Christ has done. That's why Christmas is profound. That's why we sing, and joy to the world. What do we sing? He says, no third stanza. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thins and Thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Far as far as the curse is found. The curse is removed in Christ now. Folks, this is incredible news. This is what makes Christmas colossal, not presents and, and even times of family. I mean, it's, he has removed a curse from us. Now we can be adopted. And again, respond to God as Adam responded to God. I mean, it's quite a story. I'm thankful it's true. So what do we do with this? Well, let me, just, let me just systematize some thoughts I want you to think about, and then I'll make an application at the end. Number one, we've got to understand sin. If we're going to understand anything, you have to understand the nature of sin. We typically define sin as an act or a behavior. Most Americans in one Ellison survey said that sin is what you do. And I would say, well, it is what you do, but I'd say it's who you are. You know, we see this in the, in the first couple. So as they desired to be like God, and they moved in sin, part of the curse was that their natures were twisted. That's what Augustine said, that, that this sin twisted human nature. So we used to be right, if you've ever seen a car in a major accident, you see the frame, it's twisted. Most mechanics will say you just got to start over again. It's very, very hard to get an, a twisted frame to be twist, twisted straight again. And, and so Augustine said, well, our, our natures, our orientation, they're twisted now. We don't seek to honor God. We seek to honor ourselves. We don't seek to be grateful to God. We want people to be grateful to us. We don't respond with joy and submission to God. We want personal and moral autonomy. Uh, Martin Luther called it incurvitas. It's we're curved inward. Everything's about us now. I mean, folks, if you don't see yourself in this description, then let me just be the first to tell you, you're blind as a bat. I mean, it is about us. I mean, you see it from when the kids are young. You see it when people are getting their noses out of joint over simple things. That, that the nature of sin has curved us inward. So it's not just what we do, it's who we are. I mean, how do you feel when someone says, you can't have this? What do you want? You want that. If someone says, no, 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 you must do this. Don't you just feel your heels begin to sink a little deeper in the pavement? What happens when you don't get something you think you need? Think you deserve it. 
A.W. Tozer wrote these words. He says, Sin has many manifestations, but its essence is one. A moral being created to worship before the throne of God sits on the throne of his own selfhood and from that elevated position declares, I am. That is sin in its concentrated essence. Here's the irony. Only 17% of Americans think that sin is against God. 87% will say that sin exists, but it's only on a horizontal level. It's not against God. Yet fundamentally, sin at its very core is you wanting to be God. You wanting what you want, when you want it, and how you want it, and where you want it. That's all of us. So the nature of sin is ultimately, or the, the definition of sin is ultimately about our nature being twisted and turned. But secondly about sin, you and I, sin leaves us morally responsible. We are responsible. Now, this is very important. Do you notice that in the garden, when Satan, Satan had already fallen. Satan had already rebelled against God, right? Because he's in there looking to tempt Adam and Eve. So he had already fallen, but nothing happened. It was only when Adam and Eve fell that all this catastrophic fall took place. So it's interesting, because why? Well, they were the, crea- they were the vice regents. They were the stewards of the world. It shows that they are morally responsible, because upon their sin brought judgment. Scott read uh, Romans chapter 5, 12 to 19. Adam and those following are morally responsible. You know, many Christians will still turn to blame everything on Satan. Satan provoked. He incited. He deceived. No question about it. But we are, from the scriptures, clearly morally responsible. Now, folks, just look at your souls for a second. How often do you find yourself find yourself shifting blame, blaming situations, blaming people, blaming your environment, blaming your upbringing, blaming everything. I mean, would we not fall down and die if a politician just said, I am guilty? Would it not be overwhelming? I'd vote for him. I would. I, I, I would immediately vote for him. I don't care what he espouses. Finally, somebody just... I'm wrong. There is a book called um, A Nation of Victims, and it's, it's, a, it's a book against the culture in America that is quickly becoming just a society of victims. We play the victim card. It's victimization. It's not my fault. I don't deserve this. And, and David Wells, in his book Courage to be Protestant, speaks to this. He says, As the sense of responsibility for personal behavior has shrunk, the need for litigation has increased. Think about it. If I'm not responsible, then I need to get what? A lawyer. And so is it a surprise that America has more lawyers than all the nations combined? So he speaks and references um, that famous Harvard address by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And he said this, He says, it's a terrible thing to live in a country like the former Soviet Union where there are no laws. But he went on to say it's a terrible thing to live in a country where there are only lawyers. It's it's kind of funny, but it speaks to our inability to say, God, I'm wrong. I'm the leper. I'm the lame. I'm the blind. Jesus has been brought to you from many pulpits in America as just an additive to life. 
We never deal with the issue of sin. We never deal with the, the responsibility that every one of us bears before God over our sin. Every one of us need to, needs to consider, where am I with God in terms of sin? In fact, Charles Spurgeon writes these words uh, because there were many liberal preachers in his day in London in the mid-19th century. He said, mark you in proportion... As the modern theology is preached, that is the lessening of the nature of sin within men. As the modern theology is preached, the vice of this generation increases. To a great degree, I attribute the looseness of the age to the laxity of the doctrine preached by its teachers. From the pulpit they have taught that people, they have taught the people that sin is a trifle. From the pulpit, these traitors to God and to his Christ have taught the people that there is no hell to be feared. A little, little hell perhaps there may be, but just punishment for sin is made nothing of. The precious atoning sacrifice of Christ has been derided and misrepresented by those who were pledged to preach it. They have given the people the name of the gospel, but the gospel itself has evaporated in their hands. So, in other words, we're morally responsible. We need the gospel. Gospel is absolutely critical. Another thing about the nature of sin and fallenness is you deny it in your life to your own risk. In other words, if we, and I'm always amazed at how we're able to kind of diffuse our responsibility for sin, but God has left evidences of it in our life. Number one would be personal conflict. The fear, the embarrassment, Uh, that you have the sense of hiding that you and I do. When we hide ourselves, we hide our sins. The facades that we build around ourselves so that people will think a certain way of us instead of just letting them know who we really are. That, That this idea, you know, God has left that sense of guilt and shame as evidence of our corruptibility, of our responsibility and accountability to God. But this doesn't usually stay personal. We move, some of us move to alcohol or drugs or relationships or technology to kind of diffuse the guilt that we feel. Others perhaps move towards religious piety. Some of us just want to move towards religious action to cover up the guilt and the despair of the loneliness we have. Sadly, it doesn't stay there. It moves into a relational conflict. We have marital, we have parental, we have Conflict at work, we have conflict in the community. Why? Because of the stuff that is within us. That's what James says. Why do you quarrel and fight? Is it not the desires that battle within you? So, so, I mean, do not deny the reality of sin is present in the conflict of our lives. It's evidence. So we don't want to blame shift anymore. We want to recognize this is the issue of sin. This is sin. But sin not only has affected our relationships, it affected creation, right? Even as Blair read from Isaiah 11. The lion doesn't lay down with the lamb anymore. Lamb wouldn't have anything to do with the lion because they'll eat it. There'll be a day when they lie down again. But there is creational conflict. The, the, the heavens declare the glory of God, but now the heavens declare the judgment of God. Why we have tsunamis and hurricanes and tornadoes. I don't mean to, to say why, God would, why God's hurricane or why this, this really fallen evidence of creation hits New Orleans instead of Miami. I don't know. But I do know that the, the reality of these things is evidence that this creation is not as it should be. How about work? Work was given to you as a gift. And what do we thank God for today? It's Friday. 
Thank God it's Friday. We don't have to work anymore. And yet work was a gift of God. And now we're thanking him for getting us out of the gift he's given us. So this creational conflict, sin brings death. Folks, if the Lord tarries, we all die. You may die of cancer, of heart failure, of accident. The reality of it is it's sin that kills us. Sin kills us. The breaking down of the body kills us. I, chew, I, I ate a hard pretzel today, or a couple days back. Busted my tooth. That will be the $1,000 pretzel, I think is what it's going to be when they have to put a crown on my tooth. I really wish we had a dentist in the church. Um, <laughs> I'm not kidding. Um, it's, it's the age reminding me the, the marks on your hands, the wrinkles on your face. The nature of sin is just breaking down. We're not meant for this place. It's the last vestiges of sin that Jesus has come to redeem and deliver us from. The good news, folks, is that sin cannot thwart the plan of God. Sin cannot thwart it. I mean, you think about the seed, the promise given back in Genesis 3.15, and think about the, just the horrible generations that that seed of the woman passed through. I mean, even to the crucifixion. It's interesting the way Peter references the crucifixion in his sermon. He says, Men of Israel, in Acts 2.22, Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So think about it. If you were there on Calvary watching him be mistreated by these Roman soldiers, by these Jewish leaders, you think there's a tragedy of justice going on here. And there, in fact, was in some respects. You would think the world's lost control. Look, he's an innocent man. They're killing him. And guess what? It was all according to the predetermined, foreordained plan of God. Sin will not thwart God. You have Joseph saying to his brothers, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. You have Romans 8, 20, all things will work towards good. Sin will not thwart the plan of God. And the struggles that you have due to the sin in your life, God will not be thwarted to accomplish what he's going to accomplish. And, and, then, and then last, sin is overcome by the gospel. Folks, if I said this last because if you forget everything else I've said, this, what, this is what I want you to remember, and that is that there is no self-reformation project that you can get through. There is no new self-help book that you can find at the local Lifeway bookstore. There's no behavioral adjustment. There's 10 ways to live. All that stuff may have a place at some point down the road. The reality of it, in fact, I want you to see that in the nature of, here's a perfect example. I'm reading the news, and, um, you know, there's a debate in Saudi Arabia that women shouldn't drive. Um, you don't want my vote on that one. Um, <laughs> right, honey? Um, their reasoning is that, that some of these religious leaders have, have done some research and found that if women drive, they will be more predisposed to sex before marriage. Now, they, uh, in Islam and in many of the world's religions, there is this tendency to behavioral modification leading towards holiness. It won't happen. Keeping a woman 
from behind the wheel of a car may save countless lives. But, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm probably got all kinds of hate mail now. Um, but it won't change the nature of the woman. This is why the gospel is so essential. It's in the nature, it's who we are that has been warped and marred. This is why Jesus said, you have to be born again. If you want to see the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. God has to take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. You'll never see the kingdom of God. Only the gospel, only that move of God in grace, putting your sins and your shame upon the Son. He bears the curse. He shouts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He bears the curse, rises from the dead, sends to the Father, gives the Spirit, draws you in through the power of the Spirit into adoption, that you now are a new creation. Now, that doesn't mean you don't sin. Uh, but now you have the ability to live righteously through the power of the Spirit, being conformed to the image of Christ. So that's the story. Creation falls. Redemption comes. Curse is placed on Christ. Freedom now given to the church. Right? We're waiting for that day when he will wipe away the last vestiges of sin and then we can be with him and enjoy him forever. I've kind of gone through a little systematizing truth of sin. Let me finish with this. There's really three people here, three types of people here, and I want you to figure out where you are in this. Some of you are still rebels. You have not bent the knee to Christ. You have not considered yourself a great sinner in great need. In fact, Martin Luther was great. He writes, he goes, the ultimate proof of the sinner is that he doesn't know his own sin. You, don't th you think you're fine. You're in great shape with God. I have people proclaiming to me all the time the relationship they have with God is just perfect. A rebel is a person who has not bowed the knee. They haven't submitted joyfully to God. They haven't considered their sin. They haven't repented and turned to Christ. You are still a rebel in the Scripture's eyes. You are still opposing God. You're still under the curse. You're still going to stand before God for your sins. And I would simply implore you to consider these things. Consider the story of the Bible. That God is gracious. Come ye sinners, poor and naked. I love that song. I feel like it was written for me. So to the, to the rebels here, even though you don't feel rebellious towards God, apart from Christ, you are yet apart from God. And if, if you are struggling with this, if you're sensing the burden of your sin, if you're if you have a growing awareness of your distance from God, then please come forward and talk to us. Many, some of you are rebels. Some of you here are religious. I mean, you are good, moral people. You are doing what you think you're supposed to do. Christ is not a big part of your life. He's part of the, the language and part of the dialect that you may use, but he's not central. He's not core. He's not growing in importance. You're not growing in love. You're not hungering to see him more and more. And, and you, you feel comfortable in the religious game and in a religious world. It's a nice culture to be in. But it's a dangerous world to be in. Because you're not relying fully on the merits of Christ. You're looking more like the Pharisees. I mean, they did it all. And yet, they still were called to repent. Have you repented? And then, then many of you in here are reconciled to God. Praise God for that. You've been, you, your souls have been made awake, made alive by God out of his mercy. 
And you see the fruit of that by the desire to repent. So now when you sin, as I sin in the morning, I'm getting up. God, forgive me for that. You know, I'm, I'm burdened by the sin of my life. And I'm repenting, seeking grace. God, let me enjoy the taste of your forgiveness. Let me have the grace to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Pleading with them. And I want to rejoice with you. Christmas is a day of rejoicing. Your Savior has come to take your curse. So let's take a few minutes now and uh, let's pray. I think Jack is going to close us in just a moment. But let me start out. I would ask you to pray briefly. I would ask you to pray loudly. I would ask you to pray in a way that we can join with you, uh, either in a word of thanks for the glory of Christ or even a word of repentance over the many loves we've pursued this week. Father, thank you for the grace you've given to us in your Son. God, help this truth be grasped by these souls that it would yield great righteousness in their lives for your glory.